Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Well, good evening, everyone. Let me welcome you, if I could. My name is Frank Roby. I'm the Vice Chair for the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. We're excited to have uh, Alex Palacios with us. Uh, he has a very important subject. I know that we could have a, a very broad debate on who in life deserves a chance uh, or a second chance or another chance but we would never debate as to whether that's a child. And uh, in his area of specialty, uh, it's a very uh, unknown, really, almost organization uh, that he has tremendous responsibilities for, that has tremendous amount of influence. Uh, great things are happening every day around the world uh, under his leadership and those that he works with uh, in a very quiet way. And our, our uh, country is playing a role in that, and each of us here are gonna learn more about it. So Alex, we're Looking forward to hearing from you shortly. I especially want to thank the Billingsley Company. They have been a tremendous supporter, not just this year, but over many years for the Global Connection Series, a very important initiative of the World Affairs Council to make sure that we are attending to uh, world affairs from a uh, multidimensional perspective. It's now my pleasure to introduce uh, Alex Palacios with us. He is the special representative of the Executive Office of the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunizations, known as Gavi. Prior to joining the Gavi Alliance, Alex was Chief of International and Corporate Alliances, that section of UNICEF uh, and its New York headquarters. Uh, he's also served several posts in the U.S. government, including Deputy Assistant Administrator for Legislative and Public Affairs uh, for USAID and uh, Assistant General Counsel at the Peace Corps uh, and the um, Inter-American Foundation. Uh, we really are privileged to have someone whose career is so deep into organizations that touch and affect uh, the lives of millions of people that will never meet in a life-saving way, but does that in a, in a large, uh, you could even call it bureaucratic environment, and finds a way to get things done. So Alex, thank you for sharing your insights and wisdom with us tonight. We're looking forward to hearing what you have to say and uh, asking questions afterwards. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's. Um, it's a pleasure to, uh, to be here, it's, uh, and, and I like the idea of the sort of the intimate setting, so I hope we, we make this more of a conversation, um, and I, I'm going to try to be relatively brief so we have a chance to chat, and, and I'm happy to answer whatever questions that you have. I must say, looking at the pictures around the room, I don't know if, uh, if all of those people spoke in this room, or I know that they've addressed the, the World Affairs Council, but uh, it's a little bit humbling. Uh, uh, some of those people I've, I've had the pleasure over the years to meet in, in Washington, and uh, it's, it's neat to see those, those pictures. Um, I don't have a, a PowerPoint presentation, but at the conclusion of the, uh, of, the, of the remarks, I thought we'd try to show a film if you were able to pull it up, because I think it's good. It's a very brief, very, very brief uh, video. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, what I think is essentially the state of immunization, globally speaking, and, and essentially linking that to the state of the health of the world's children, because the two are so closely, closely linked. And um, I thought I'd start, uh, despite the topic, with a little bit of a, 
of a humorous uh, story, a joke really, but I think it, 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 it kind of sets the, sets the question well. Um, many years ago, former President Brezhnev, who was known, among other things, for brevity, he didn't like to talk a lot, was asked by a, a rather pesky Western reporter uh, whether he could, in one word, literally just one word, uh, describe his view of the Russian economy. And Brezhnev thought about it for a second, and he said, good. <laughs> that was his answer, good. And then the reporter thought he'd, he'd needle just a little further, and he said, well, um, what, um, how would you describe in two words the Russian economy? And Brezhnev thought about it, frowned a bit, and said, not good. <laughs> so, and it, it, this is a true story. So, uh, LBJ was once asked how the country was doing, and he actually answered in a slightly similar way. He said, country's doing great, country's in fine shape, but Congress is responsible for the mess we're in. <laughs> so, from a former Senate Majority Leader, but uh, how quickly they forget. Um, I, think, um, I think essentially the good news uh, around child immunization um, and child health is that um, there has been significant progress over the last 30 years or so. Um, immunization rates today globally stand at about 80%. Uh, and as I mentioned uh, on the margins earlier, um, that is good news if you compare it to the 20% or 18% um, that we were looking at in the early 1980s when the, um, uh, the, the likelihood of a child dying before reaching the age of five was, in fact, uh, very high. It was very risky, frankly, to be a child growing up in the developing world uh, 30 years ago, much more so than today. That risk, there's some risk that remains, but it's all relative, and relatively speaking, we are, we are seeing some progress. Um, in the fall of last year, I participated in the launch of a global report called the State of the World's Immuniza Immunization Report, which was released by the World Health Organization and partners such as Gavi uh, in Washington at the National Press Club. And part of the good, the good news story there was that a record 106 million children out of a birth cohort of 130 million um, were now regularly being immunized, that we were reaching essentially 80% of the world's children with basic vaccines. And increasingly, due to some of the support that Gavi had provided over recent years, some of the newer vaccines were also making their way to, to the developing world. I should note that there has historically been a 17 to 20 year gap between the discovery and development of a new vaccine, such as hepatitis B, and its availability in the poorest countries. Um, in the wealthier countries, it's very few years, often, often, um, sort of mass uh, inclusion in national immunization programs, and you see rates shoot from virtually zero to 80 or 90 percent because it's incorporated into the national program, and it happens at state level and it happens at local level. But in the developing world, you can see many, uh, virtually a generation go by, and many people still infected, still dying, still ill from diseases uh, for which there are vaccines. And, and that's, that's one of the, the challenges that the Gavi Alliance seeks to, seeks to overcome. Um, um, 
10 years ago, at, at the turn of the century in 2000, um, what we saw really were rates of immunization declining after having, um, after having gone up for a period of years beforehand. And that led to some real anxiety. That anxiety led to the creation of the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization, a view that something had to happen um, at the grandest possible scale involving all of the partners in immunization so that we could reverse that decline. We didn't want to see ourselves slip back to the 18 to 20 percent level. And again, immunization is it's, it's, it's a discipline, it's an exercise that you have to do every year that has to be ongoing. You can't let up. And we find that even in industrialized countries, even in wealthy countries such as the United States, you can relax a bit and you can find yourself with the cases of diseases you thought were long gone reemerging. So this was, this was the, what led to the, uh, uh, to the creation of Gavi. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, what, what has turned around for immunization over the last 10 years, but I wanted to cover a little bit of a sort of a brief history of, of immunization over the years so that um, I can set it into a, a historical context. Let me start with 1980. 19, uh, shortly after um, 1980, I, I began working at, at, in this area of, of development. And child mortality, number of children under the age of five dying across, across the world with a very high percentage in developing countries, stood at 14.1 million children a year. And just think about that number, 14, over 14 million children a year dying many of them from preventable diseases. That's 38,350 children a day, 1,600 children an hour. So imagine if any kind of natural disaster or some conflict were to produce that level of carnage, that level of mortality, we would be absolutely riveted, of course. We are riveted with, an, with a Haiti earthquake or a Pakistan floods um, obviously, it, it commands attention, and there's something that must be done about that. But the problem with those deaths uh, back in the 1980s is that they were largely unknown, unseen. It was a silent emergency. And I happened to be at UNICEF at the time, and really our challenge, as we saw it in those days, was to, first of all, communicate to the world in a way that they could understand and fathom. The numbers are so huge that this was actually real. I happened to work very closely uh, during those days with the, um, a very wealthy businessman in Washington, um, Abe Poland, who owned the, the Washington Bullets basketball team. And when he saw an editorial that we had arranged in the Washington Post that said almost 40,000 kids are dying a day, he called the editor of the Washington Post and said, you know, this is, this is quite a shocking story, but of course there's a typo he didn't think it was possible that that number of children could die every day. And this is a, a man who had traveled to Africa, had spent time in, in Niger and so forth. He said, uh, no, it's not a typo. That is, that's the number. That's, that, that's real. And, um, and, and I think that the shock of that is what, is what really um, should, drive, should drive us. That number is lower today, and I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. But just to, 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 set, to set that scale... Uh, why, why do we need to work at such scale? 
The diseases that were killing uh, children um, in the 1980s, not entirely all that different from today, but the, the, the scale is different. Preventable diseases like measles, and I'm not talking about the mild case of measles that one might, uh, might uh, contract in this, in this country, but a very virulent case uh, type of measles. Pertussis whooping cough, which of course in, in Texas states, states like Texas and California have become, uh, have reemerged and, and have caused some, uh, some mortality and certainly some illness. Tetanus, a terrible, terrible disease, maternal and neonatal tetanus, which um, uh, is, is heart-wrenching to see uh, in, a, in a child. A dehydration caused by the rotavirus. It's diarrheal dehydration, which actually is a very, very major cause of, of mortality. Um, so at the time of this silent emergency, uh, in, in the early 1980s, um, immunization rates in the world, as I noted, were below 20%. Again, vaccines existed and were actually fairly cost-effective, fairly inexpensive uh, against those diseases, but they were not available to a very significant number, uh, a percentage of the population in, in those countries. Um, so in the early 1980s, what was launched, we called the Child Survival and Development Revolution. It was, it was literally thought to need, it was what was needed was an actual revolution to, to completely overwhelm, essentially, the, 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 uh, the developing country dynamic with assistance, uh, with the right kinds of tools and approaches, uh, prevention becoming one of the major elements of, of uh, that revolution, but also alongside that treatment, and a partnership, partnership with governments, partnership with civil society, organizations like CARE, Save the Children, church organizations, all of which became part of the, of, of the, of the response to, to the challenge. Um, I had the opportunity during those days to work with uh, someone who became a Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient, James Grant, who um, had been born and raised in China and had, um, had an opportunity to see um, extreme poverty throughout his, his lifetime. Um, uh, not only as a young man, but also later on at, at, with USAID. Um, and he was the head of UNICEF uh, during the 1980s. And he placed child immunization at the very center of this revolution because he saw that immunization was actually the most cost-effective, best buy in public health, and that it had the potential, essentially, of completely um, reversing the, the picture. Uh, in terms of illness and, and mortality among children. Um, what he did, I think, at the end was not just to raise the visibility of this challenge uh, and give voice to the silent emergency. I think he actually generated political will globally to do something about it. And, and indeed, the, the resources um, that were made available as a result of his work um, were, were essentially applied in scores and scores of countries around the world. Um, by 1990, child mortality had dropped to 12.8 million uh, deaths per year under the age of five, and immunization rates were, were climbing, reported to be over 70%. Again, with China slightly skewing that, so I think you're looking at sub-Saharan Africa rates growing or rising from uh, somewhere in the teens to probably 45 or 50 percent. 
Um, but that, in and of itself, is a tremendous achievement given the lack of infrastructure, given the challenges in so many countries in Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, immunization by 1990 was already saving over two million lives a year. Um, again, keep in mind the growing population over this period of time as the world population increases and you're still able to bring down the number of child deaths. I think it shows the power of, of the interventions that we were, that we were promoting. Um, in uh, the fall of 1990, there was a World Summit for Children held at the United Nations. The first ever North, South, East, West Summit, heads of state, George Bush uh, Sr. attended as, as, uh, as the US representative. And the 70 heads of state basically committed themselves to an agenda, an agenda that would place children um, within development at the very, at the very center. And, and I really do think that it was as a result of that meeting that maternal and child health, even to this day, stands as a, as a, central, uh, a central element in development. Uh, for those who watched uh, uh, the G8, for example, the G8 that was held this July um, uh, in, in Canada, um, its major development uh, uh, piece was maternal and child health initiative of $5 billion. And at a time like this, when resources are so tight, I think that that's a, that's a very, special, very special initiative. Um, one of the things that happened following that summit for children in 1990 is that we saw across um, too many poor countries um, the spread of HIV AIDS. HIV-AIDS, armed conflict, natural disasters, again, deforestation being one of the challenges over, over the last 20 years or so particularly, um, led to a, um, a weakening of the health system, pulling resources, um, pulling resources uh, away from basic interventions like immunization. Um, and um, I think that armed conflict, if you think about Central Africa, you think about Rwanda and Burundi, um, that obviously had a, a devastating effect on, on, on health. In Mozambique, in 1986, 1985-86, during the Civil War there, the RENAMO, the, the um, insurgent, uh, well, in the Civil War, the insurgent isn't the right, the right word, the, uh, the anti-government forces, um, they basically targeted the health clinics that UNICEF and others had built over the 15 or 20 years beforehand because those clinics were seen essentially as serving the government's interest. They were providing services to the people that, let, that tended to uh, create support among the people for the government, so they wanted to undermine that. What that did was make Mozambique um, uh, just about the number one country in the world in terms of uh, high uh, child mortality. At the same time, landmines were placed all over the place, and Mozambique also became the number one country uh, where landmines were, uh, were hurting and killing uh, children. Um, the Gavi Alliance was born um, in 2000 uh, because essentially the partners that were involved in immunization, including UNICEF, the World Health Organization, the World Bank, uh, donor countries and developing countries, and a new foundation, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, decided that something rather major, again, had to be done at the scale of the original child survival and development revolution to, um, to address the challenge that HIV AIDS, armed conflict, 
and, um, and other uh, distracting uh, issues were, were, were creating. And um, the, 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 the foundation, the Gates Foundation, made the largest ever international health grant um, to Gavi to get it started, $750 million, which was then repeated in 2004 for a total of $1.5 billion now. Um, our challenge was essentially to match that and exceed it if we could, and uh, we've actually managed to do that in various ways. The United States is among the core donors to Gavi. It has um, contributed uh, almost uh, $650 million at this point. Of course, the U.S. process is an annual appropriation, so it can't make long-term commitments uh, generally, but um, it is one of the most significant donors that we have. There are 16 uh, donor governments providing support in the European Union. And um, the foundation is now uh, still such a major uh, partner and supporter, but one among many, uh, which, uh, which has had a huge impact, uh, I think, on our, on our ability to provide support to developing countries. Um, we have committed over $4.5 billion now to over 70 countries, and these are all countries that are um, under 1,000 GNI per capita, so it's very much a poverty focus. It's the poorest of the poor where the infrastructure is, is, uh, is weak. Um, in addition to providing support for the procurement and delivery of vaccines, we also um, provide support for the strengthening of immunization and health systems. Again, one of the challenges that we have is that we've got this great technology, this great tool that can literally revolutionize public health, but the system that's needed to ensure that that tool, that that, that technology can be made available to the poorest people and people in outlying areas, often marginalized areas, um, is, is, not, is not really adequate. So it needs shoring up, it needs strengthening. And that's both in terms of sort of a, a hardware sense, cold boxes to keep vaccines cold, um, and motorcycles and vehicles to take vaccines from uh, central sites out to, to far flung sites, but also um, human resources. Human resources is the central, uh, really a central element within public health, and in many, many countries they, uh, they either don't have the budgets or don't have the, um, uh, uh, the trained staff, and, uh, and they need support to be able to build that. It kind of reminds me a little bit of um, the, the development of the light bulb by Edison. He developed the light bulb first, and he had this great technology, and sort of it was it was it had the capacity and did revolutionize the business place and the home. But there wasn't a grid yet in place so that that technology could achieve that level of impact. So he actually had to park it for a while, and then figure out what kind of grid would you know made the most sense. Of course, he lost out in the end to Tesla. But nonetheless, it was that grid and the combination of the grid and that technology that, that made the revolution possible. So in public health, it's, it's, it's not all that dissimilar from, from that. Um, 2010. Let me just say that, again, come, think back to the figure that I cited at the very start of the talk. Um, we were looking at um, 14 
or so million children die each year of uh, largely of preventable diseases, um, some of them vaccine-preventable diseases. Today, that figure stands at 8.8 .8 million. Again, still a very tragic figure, but some significant progress over the last 30 years. What are the births in each of the two periods? The number of people born in each period. Um, yeah, I'm going to. It's. I, I'm going to say that the number of births has increased probably about 20 percent over the 30 years, from, from 1980. Yeah, from so I would say the birth cohort. My recollection is that the birth cohort we were looking at was about 110 million in 1980, and now we're looking at 130 million. Um, so that represents actually even more progress. It's it's right. it's it's almost geometric in a sense if if you look at it. So we're still looking at 24,000 uh, children dying every day, but we're way down from the 38,500. A recent study by the Pan American Health Organization um, credits immunization with a 50% of the drop in child mortality of, among children in the Americas region, just as one example. Um, so clearly, it's had a very significant, significant impact. Mortality and morbidity due to hepatitis B, which is their three vaccines which Gavi has <coughs> prioritized over the last 10 years, and they are hepatitis B, hemophilus influenza type B, which causes a, a very um, virulent form of meningitis, and yellow fever, which has been uh, a cyclical disease, really, particularly in parts of Western Africa. Um, Gavi's support has made it possible for us to preposition, uh, or for countries to preposition. Um, yellow fever vaccine in advance of epidemics unfolding so that um, we were dealing essentially with a, an early onset rather than something that was being dealt with eventually out there. Just to give you a sense of the dynamics in, in, in developing countries, if in, if in a country like, um, like Mali, yellow fever, uh, or Togo was probably the best example, um, historically you would have these cyclical outbreaks um, the authorities, it would take them a while to recognize that, in fact, they had a yellow fever challenge. Um, often surveillance wasn't, uh, resources for surveillance w w just weren't there. They would send the signal. Donors and agencies like UNICEF would be notified. We would scramble to get resources together, ask the vaccine-producing companies to get the yellow fever vaccine produced and shipped. Meanwhile, this, this thing was growing like a mushroom. Seven, eight, ten months later, if and that, that that's a very optimistic time frame, vaccine would arrive already. Thousands and thousands of people would have been infected. Many would have died. What we've done is that we've been able to secure the financing up front, preposition the vaccine, have have stocks also that we didn't have before, and essentially the yellow fever epidemics are gone. You just don't you don't even hear about them anymore. I'm going to continue with some good news, and I'm going to talk a little bit about bad news. <laughs> um, there's been good news on the traditional vaccine side, the older vaccines, vaccines that have been in place and have been protecting kids for some 30 or 40 years. Measles, probably one of the biggest but not yet known success stories over the last decade. Measles deaths in Africa are down more than 90% in just 10 years. From, um, globally, from 750,000 deaths in 2000, down to less than 150,000 globally in 2009. Um, and, and 
that's the good news. The slight concern around that is that there's so much um, excitement around this great reduction that it's pe- people, in, particularly in, in, in uh, donors, seem to think that the victory is in hand, that we basically have beat measles and we can move on to other things. But again, with immunization, with, dis- with disease control like this, it requires consistency, and year after year we're going to have to be immunizing against, against measles. But it shows that great progress can be achieved even in a period of only 10 years. Polio. Polio is on the verge of eradication, only the second time in history um, that a major disease has been eradicated. Smallpox was eradicated in the 1970s, and um, we now, um, this many years later, have the opportunity, we're on the verge of eradicating polio. From over 40,000 cases of polio in 2000, down from hundreds of thousands of cases in the 1980s and the 1990s, down to just a few hundred cases today. Four endemic countries only. America's totally polio-free, parts of of Asia totally uh, polio-free, but there are four endemic countries and they are large countries uh, with significant populations. India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Nigeria. I think one of the, um, one of the uh, unfortunate um, uh, byproducts of, of conflict in the Middle East is that um, in 2003, in northern Nigeria, the um, governor in the, the northern Kano state basically halted immunization, uh, polio immunization, because he somehow linked it um, uh, in his mind with a sort of a Western... Uh, uh, I don't know why I could use the word infusion. Exterminating. No, it was it sort of it was it was a Western thing that was being forced upon the the society, and um, he and others spread word. He's no longer there, the same governor. Um, that um, that polio uh, vaccination would sterilize uh, kids. So immunization stopped for about two years in northern Nigeria at a time when actually we were very getting very, very close to eradicating polio in Nigeria. Then, of course, it's, a, it's an Islamic part of the, the country. The Hajj came along um, some uh, months later, and then polio cases were spread uh, around many parts of the world, particularly the Islamic world. So um, one of the, I think one of them, again, a fascinating thing is how the Islamic community itself and the imams reversed that challenge, uh, took it on, and used the pulpit, in a sense, to convince people that um, immunization against polio was critical. They didn't want to see um, crippled or, or uh, children in, in uh, uh, dying or in uh, sort of the modern version of, a, of an iron lung. And um, it's taken us five years, but it's been, it's been overcome. The cases are way down again. That was just, but to show you how quickly it can just explode again. Uh, we continue to immunize kids in this country against polio, yet there hasn't been a live case of polio in the United States, I think, for 40 years. Um, but we have to, we, we have to keep, keep at it until the disease is fully, fully eradicated. But what a gift it would be to the next generation if we could say that we literally eliminated a disease from the, from the face of the earth. 
The last um, bit of good news in terms of, of older vaccines uh, and immunization is maternal and neonatal tetanus. Again, tetanus is a terrible disease. It's often or most often uh, contracted when the umbilical cord is cut with the old rusty razor blade or piece of metal that, um, that one finds in, in uh, you know, poor resource areas. Um, the mother gets tetanus, the child gets tetanus, and um, uh, rarely does a child survive more than six weeks, uh, a, bad, a bad case of, of tetanus. Um, each of the important gains, whether measles, polio, tetanus, and what we've been able to achieve through Gavi has one thing in common, and that is a public-private partnership. Um, the agencies that have been working on this have teamed up with civil society, with private corporations. Rotary International, I think people might know, has been one of the major supporters of the polio eradication initiative. Rotary alone has contributed close to three-quarters of a billion dollars. Um, this is all the Rotary clubs around the world um, contributing over the last 25 years toward the eradication of, of polio. Now what we have is a platform in place, as I mentioned, that is reaching 80% of the world's children with um, uh, basic immunization. What we can do with that is that we can build upon that platform and now really address the major causes of child mortality. And there are two main, um, two main diseases that, that, um, that are, that are uh, threatening children today. 40% of all child mortality, mortality meaning 40% of the 8.8 .8 million that I, that I quoted you earlier, um, are due to two diseases alone, pneumonia and diarrhea, often caused by the rotavirus. More kids die from pneumonia each year than from HIV AIDS, TB, and malaria combined. That's just one disease. Most people don't know that because pneumonia in this, in this part of the world is something that you think of as largely conquered and when it affects um, the population here, it most likely affects um, uh, the elderly. But in fact, people, um, and as you know, Africa and South Asia have, and particularly Sub-Saharan Africa, have very high levels of HIV AIDS prevalence. Most people with HIV AIDS in Africa actually die from pneumonia. They don't die from HIV. Um, their systems, their immune systems are weakened, and of course, uh, pneumonia is a, a sort of opportunistic disease and um, they, succumb, they succumb to pneumonia. So we have a huge potential with these two new vaccines. They're only a few years old. As I just came from a Texas immunization summit uh, in Fort Worth, there is work ongoing, of course, today to introduce the pneumococcal vaccine in the state of Texas and the state of California and other major states. What we're seeing is, going back to that, it's a sort of a change in equity. Going back to that figure of 17 to 20 years between the discovery and development of a new vaccine and its introduction in the poorest countries, we are now able to introduce the pneumococcal vaccine in the poorest countries um, virtually simultaneous with, 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 with what's happening in the United States and in Europe, which is great. That's, that, that means we're really, by cutting down that time lag, we are reducing the number of people who are dying in between before we get there. And, and that's, that to me is a very, very good news story. So what's the bad news to conclude on, 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 on uh, a slightly bad, bad note? Again, while we're reaching um, 106 million children out of 130 uh, born, 
Um, each year, we've got 23 million, 24 million children who do not yet have access to immunization. And of the 8.8 .8 million children, therefore, there are more than 2.5 million children who are dying from vaccine-preventable diseases. About a quarter of the challenge we can overcome with just vaccines. Um, I mentioned earlier the, the coverage rates increasing. Um, it's sort of masking a reality. And the reality is that while we're at about 80%, there are major, major pockets in developing countries where children are not being reached. And these are beyond, again, the, the capacities of the health system. But they also um, are as a result of logistical challenges in, in, in countries like the uh, Demo Democratic Republic of Congo where there's only about, it's a huge country, there's only about 700 miles of roads in the DR Congo. So the challenge to get a vaccine out to people who live beyond the, 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 so the major cities is, is, is a very real road, very difficult. There's also, um, there are pockets of people who are marginalized politically or ethnically, and, and actually they're the most vulnerable. Disease we expect we know is more rampant in those, in those areas because the services just haven't, just haven't been there. Um, I mentioned that the that gains we've achieved also can be uh, fleeting, can be just temporary. Again, the concern that if we don't maintain the priority and, and our focus, if we don't continue to provide and secure and provide the resources, and if we don't maintain the political will, um, we can find ourselves sliding back to lower levels of coverage and, and uh, mortality will, will increase again. And then there's always that one last one, which is funding gap. Finances, finances are, are always a challenge. Gavi itself faces a $4.3 billion financing gap over the next five or six years. Historically, we've, we've managed to raise resources needed, but this is a different time. Post-2008, post we find ourselves in a very different global economic situation, so we're, we're sort of working doubly hard to make sure that we can, we can raise the support. Uh, the good news is that Bill Gates has announced that uh, the decade beginning 2010 to 2020 is going to be a decade of vaccines. And he's pulled together, again, a special um, leadership group, uh, including UNICEF, the World Bank, the World Health Organization, Gavi, and others to really look at the opportunities ahead, given the platform that, have, that has already been built around immunization, with a view and a goal of actually, someone here asked me about the Millennium Development Goals. The Millennium Development Goals, which were enacted in 2000 at the, at the Millennial Assembly of the United Nations, um, essentially set out a target of reducing child mortality by two-thirds by 2015. Um, Gates is thinking beyond that at this point. Yes, we have a challenge. We have to accelerate our work to get to that goal. We're nowhere near it. But he's looking at 2020. And his vision is to be able to bring child deaths down by half by, uh, from the current level, which would actually exceed the two-thirds, um, to 5 million deaths a year, and no more than 5 million deaths a year, which would be really just an absolutely historic achievement. And he's willing to put the foundation's resources behind the discovery of new vaccines, the development of new vaccines, and ultimately the delivery. Gavi works at the delivery end. That's what we're all about. We don't put money and resources into the development of vaccines. Once a vaccine has been identified, has been perfected and pre-qualified by the World Health Organization, 
Gavi's mission is to get that vaccine as quickly as possible um, into the poorest countries so that children there can be protected like children here. Thank you very much. I'm happy to answer any questions. I think, I think the first thing is, in the, I think that's my boss speaking there, Julian's message was we need to learn from Coca-Cola. Um, they have, they and others, Unilever might be another good example, have figured out how to get their products um, to very far-flung parts of the world. And they, the very different kinds of products, a vaccine is a live biological that needs to be, uh, needs, most of them need to be kept cold throughout the entire cold chain from point A all the way out to point C. And that, that raises certain, certain issues. But we can learn, and, and partners, rather than sort of essentially um, criticizing or, or, or lamenting the fact that the Coca-Cola Coca bottle can be found there, the question is, how do they succeed in getting it there on such a reliable, in such a reliable way? And what can we do? What can Coke teach us? What can other companies teach us? And we also have a sense that by engaging with, us, with those companies, we might very well get them excited about possibly a role that, that they might be able to play in some way. Because I do think that the logistical challenge, the resource challenge, is to such a degree that it's going to take an absolute mass, mass mobilization. And, and we don't have the resources. We'll always be essentially inching upward um, and we have. We've done, we've done remarkably well, I think. Um, but as I said, I think that while we're at 80%, that last 20% is going to be a lot harder to achieve than the jump from 60 to 80. Because now is when you're really coming up against the limits of the, of the system. Now every percentage point is going to be doubly hard to, to, to secure. So I think that... Um, I think we have to scale up. I think it's all about scaling up. I do know that Coca-Cola decided that in Africa it wanted to lend its logistical know-how and distribution know-how to the HIV AIDS challenge. And it, it, it played a, a, a pretty serious role for maybe 15 or 20 years around that uh, in the early days of the, of the epidemic. I don't know what's happened with that since, but it did that. Uh, when I did the math, it appears to me that by saving six million children, you've increased the growth rate of the world by, what, one-tenth of one percent as far as population growth rate. And last week, we had a, a preliminary um, website that was given to us to do graphs for the Millennium Project, and yeah. I played with that. Yeah. And there's a very clear correlation between reduction in the number of kids in a household That's right. and the number of children. That's right. And as I started playing with it, it occurred to me that maybe the relationship is reversed, that as your children stop dying, you stop having them. Well, that's exactly, well, and that's not just theory. That essentially has been proven in virtually every country that okay. has risen out of poverty and has stabilized its public health, has seen economic growth, has seen rising education, uh, school enrollment, uh, and so forth. Um, the United States went through that. Europe went through that. 
the number of children in each household fell as parents had a greater assurance that the children they had were going to survive. It's just, and there's no, it's not about a government program, it's not about a China one-child policy, it's just what happens naturally. So you can assure the world that this will not overpopulate the world by saving the children? Yes, yes, of course. But um, I think it is fair to note, though, that there is a bit of a bump in, in the early part. There's a curve, and that curve eventually catches up with, with you, and, and it finally goes down. There but there's, there's a bump, there's a bump for a period. I don't think it's 30 years. I think it's actually shorter. Okay. Yeah. It seems counterintuitive that a refugee camp could be a good place for a child, but I was thinking as you were talking about some of the challenges in distribution in Africa. I'll tell you why they're not good places for children. Okay. It's because disease can spread like disease wildfire. Spread. Yeah. But in, in camps like in, in the Darfur region of the Sudan, or in some of the refugee camps serving children who've been caught up in the civil war in the DRC, do you have the ability to immunize them more easily when they're in one central location already being served by international aid? If you get there early enough, if basic, if there's enough support for that refugee uh, camp early on and you've got proper sanitation, you've got access, particularly measles, I mean, that's, that's where measles really tends to be, uh, it's one of the most opportunistic diseases I know, it just jumps in very quickly and, and devastates uh, a community, um, then, then it's okay. Then yes, you have access. But you know, what you really want to do is to sort of get out of this, um, there's been a little bit of a history in some countries of what we call campaign style immunization versus routine. It's to create in all countries uh, a sort of ongoing requirement necessity for immunization that parents learn is the best way to protect their children, where generations upon generations just know that this is what you do at certain points in a child's development, and, um, and uh, it becomes second nature. Um, but yes, I mean, if the worst situation, I would say, absent you know, areas you just can't reach at all, is a moving population where you can't get to them because they keep moving around. They're trying to avoid the conflict. They're being shot at. They're moving around and you can't, they're being exposed to diseases but you can't get to them. That's, that's a terrible, and that's during the conflicts of the, in the Great Lakes and in, in, um, uh, throughout the 80s and the mid-90s, it was, it was terrible, just terrible. I saw your hand briefly. Yeah. Uh. Be very honest, Captain Rotary working It's a tough question to answer because they're doing such a great job. Um, I think the Rotarians have more than any other um, private entity raised awareness of the basic challenges around public health, all focused really on one disease, but it's been a broader been a broader understanding that's been developed around that. Um, they've contributed resources unlike, you know, any other. And again, it's it's not just what they do in donor countries. It's what Rotary has done in developing countries. Rotaries in India, Rotaries in in, in other uh, countries in Africa, um, help raise political awareness as well as a a, a broader society's awareness of. Um, so they are effective politically. Very effective. 
very effective. And you get a bunch of rota Rotarians going up to Capitol Hill and talking to members of Congress about uh, the importance of ensuring that uh, U.S. commitment to polio eradication is maintained, and uh, they listen to Rotarians. So I, it's, it's hard for me to find anything that they could do better. I, I wish we had more Rotaries out there. Gavi is about 5%, um, and I think that one of the reasons we are able to keep it that low is that we are an alliance and we didn't recreate or create parallel um, systems or mechanisms. We, we have as a partner UNICEF. UNICEF is the world's largest procurer of uh, vaccines for the developing world. They have expertise, they have the, um, the pipelines essentially that one would need to use, and that's part of their contribution to the relationship with Gavi. So we don't have to add a cost on that side. Um, the World Health Organization is sort of the, the, the standards organization. Uh, the pre-qualification of vaccines, they are in charge of surveillance in developing countries, um, and uh, they provide the annual reports on, on child morbidity and mortality. Um, so so we, we're small. Um, again, it's a multi-billion dollar uh, organization with only 130 staff. The World Bank serves as our main treasurer, uh, and uh, they've been very heavily involved. They haven't talked about everything because there's just too much stuff to throw into a, a, a brief amount of time, but one of the things that we've done that's been very innovative that the bank has been a main partner in is that we issue bonds on the capital markets based on donor, uh, long-term donor commitments so that we can front load money into immunization programs. It's not any different, really, from what a municipality uh, or a county might do. You want to build a bridge, but you don't have the resources in hand to build that bridge, so the state or the municipality issues bonds. Those bonds are based on tax receipts they know that will be, will be coming in. There's no reason why you can't do that for development. And so that's, that's, we're doing that for, for immunization. So, so this Six governments. It's AAA rated. Um, this one's held a AAA rating. The United Kingdom, France. These are nations. This is sovereign. This is sovereign. These are these are sovereign. Italy's one of them. Um, it's these are sovereign uh, twenty-year commitments. Yeah. Administrate, you mean administrative cost? Yeah. Administrative like what cost. Of that is a, is I, mean, I think that it depends on the nature of the program, and we have to understand that some programs are more labor intensive than others. Um, but I would say if you can maintain your administrative costs um, under 25%, you're doing, you're doing pretty well. Yeah. I mean, if it's a really if it's a long-term development effort and you're providing, in addition to the commodities and the, and the, the sort of the, the stuff uh, around development, as well as expertise, you need to have staff on board who can provide that expertise over a long period of time. You've got to have resources for travel. You've got to be able to maintain the dialogue and maintain the visibility of the program. There, there are costs to that. Yeah. 
And there's a certain amount of political influence in hiring people from all these different countries to help administer the thing sure. too. I think sure. it's vested interest sure. in but I, I mean, I myself, I get nervous if you get yourself above, the, the, the more above 20% you get, the more nervous I get as someone in the, in the business. Yeah. We have a lot of redundancy in our record keeping and vaccinations here. Parents, pediatricians, I heard about that. schools, I heard about that the state. So yeah. lots of different levels that are keeping track of our kids' immunizations. What challenge is that kind of individual record keeping in a developing world, how do they keep track of who's received what? Yeah, um, you don't, that would be a luxury to have that kind of a, of a challenge in the developing world. I mean, what you really have often uh, are, um, it's very localized, very decentralized, and the collection of the information becomes sort of one of the biggest challenges. How do you get from so many different sentinel uh, areas or sentinel hospitals or district clinics how do you get how do you get all that information uh, pulled together it's actually a major exercise every year um, I should note that in many 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 developing countries um, birth certificates essentially are not the document that most people have that proves essentially that they exist that the government recognizes that they have um, uh, citizenship and a right to certain benefits as a result of you know, uh, existing in a particular country. It is actually their national immunization card, which is the one document that they have that says, I was born on a certain date, I received the following immunization, and it's so important as a document, and many of you probably have seen it, it's yellow because it's a particular form that the World Health Organization developed. They put it in plastic, and it's the one thing that they have with them, uh, particularly in settings where they might have to pick up and move from one, you know, one setting to another. It's the one thing that they'll tend to have. And a mother will show it to you very proudly. It's the one thing. Do you have a birth certificate? Is often the answer is no. What's that? So one of the things that UNICEF itself has been doing is to promote, you know, birth certificates as a matter of course, even in the poorest countries, so that um, we can keep better track of where, where people have lived um, and uh, attached to that sort of your immunization record, you start getting a much better sense. Gathering of statistics and information regarding uh, the population in, in developing countries is a very, very big challenge. Well, I'm going to close with the last question, if you, sure. if you would, in mind, Alex. Um, to the gentleman's question about Coca-Cola, I'm talking about that. Uh, Coca-Cola, of course, is not made in one place and then shipped everywhere. They, right. It's bottled in other places. You get a different quantity. Of course, you don't have the same refrigeration requirements and things like that to get with organizations. But in these partnerships and the ways that you're exploring um, ways of doing a better job of getting it more places quicker, are you even looking at the possibility of actually making uh, any of these uh, vaccinations in other places outside of where the primary plants are, is everything made you know, in, in the home country and then shipped under refrigeration and moved like that? It's, the, it's a real mishmash. Like it's a real mishmash, Frank. Mm -hmm. um, there are, a, one of the good bits of news is that there are more companies producing vaccines today than there were 10 or 15 years ago. The fact that we've given such visibility to immunization that so much money has essentially been, been, um, uh, been brought to the challenge has increased the sense of a market, mm -hmm. and therefore you have more manufacturers. 
10, 15 years ago, the number of pharmaceutical companies producing vaccines was actually dropping. And even in the United States, there was concern in HHS and the CDC that for certain vaccines, they would only have one supplier. And of course, that's a bad new, that's the a bad situation. The government contract, you guarantee them a profit. The government contract. Well, like true. No, but the point is, if you've only got one supplier, you've got to take the price that supplier throws at you. You have no, you have no there's no competition, you have no choice. So it's, the good news is that there are more companies producing vaccines. Um, a vaccine, unlike a lot of other medicines, like a lot of other health interventions, is alive, again, alive biological. The importance of ensuring the quality of that vaccine and um, uh, ensuring that it is uh, still viable when it reaches its ultimate destination, a child somewhere, uh, an infant child often, um, is so, that's such, a, such an intense concern that um, uh, I think that there, the initial thinking is let's get the number of com uh, companies producing these vaccines, not only in industrialized countries but in developing countries, growing. Um, let's ensure the quality of those vaccines because an adverse event or a, a bad batch that causes itself um, illness or mortality would set us back hugely. So my sense is that um, that the control and the, the, the safety challenge is, is, is so major that we're not at a point where you can sort of think of having this more locally produced up to a point, I would say. I think ultimately we're gonna see vaccines not done through the arm with a needle, but potentially even aerosol. I think that's where that's where the technology may be headed, where it's aerosol, where essentially, rather than a, a plane dropping DDT somewhere, it is immunizing an entire population through through an aerosol. Keeps the mosquitoes down at the same time. Right. <laughs> Those well, are bed nets. Thank you, Alex, for thank you. Uh, sharing your For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.